I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> Robbie Robbie weekly. Little reverse pass. Oh, 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 Magic! You're not alive, boys, so you start kicking when the room is spinning and the words aren't sticking. Hello and welcome to Rugby Weekly. A very happy new year to you. Gavin Casey here in studio, joined as always by Murray Kinsella of the 42.e. How are you, Murray, and how was your Christmas? Yeah, it was fantastic. Uh, just before I came on, I was talking about my brilliant trip down to your home city of Cork. I uh, was raving about the Beamish down there. It was a new thing for me, but um, yeah, I had a lovely break. Kind of took in as much of the rugby as I could while I was off, but... Uh, Looking forward to getting back into it. It's a busy few months ahead now. Yeah, this podcast is brought to you by Beamish, not under the influence of, <laughs> but brought to you by, no, I'm only joking. We're joined as well by the returning Andy Dunn. Great to see you, Andy. You too, Gav. How Likewise, I was in West Cork, in Bally de Hob. I didn't have Beamish, I had a Guinness in Levis's pub. Were you chased out of there? No, it was just the, I can't remember his name now, but the owner and myself and I had a packet of salt and vinegar crisps and we had a nice little chat and there was nobody else there in the place. It's just the two of us. Hard to bait. Uh, it was. Boy, it was. has your family deserted you at this stage? No, I hadn't told them I'd arrived, I think, at that stage. The first thing I did was go there um, just for a bit of peace and quiet. And then, Before and seeing the family, yes, a bit of peace yeah, and quiet. Well, yeah. they're, about, they're only about two minutes away from Leaves pub, so... Uh, I was going to say don't tell them that but it's now on a podcast oh, so. there you go. although they don't listen so. pre-drinking to see the family <laughs> <laughs> ah I'm glad you enjoyed your breaks boys yeah, um, fantastic actually yeah I was also in Cork for most of it as you can imagine um, took a lot easier this year kind of it was a nice time I don't know maybe getting old it was more about <laughs> catching up with people that I hadn't seen in a while like seen in a year went down to um, Dingle for New Year's we stay an inch in a, in a cottage over uh, Inch Beach every year and bumped into, you know, the actor Barry Keown. Yeah. He's uh, from Love Aid and yeah, he's yeah. in Chernobyl. He's big in Hollywood now. Yeah, he, he was telling me he's going to be the villain in the next Marvel superheroes wow, movie wow. in Exclusive. November. I, th- I think it may have been out there already. I was just, uh, I didn't realize it myself. Massive boxing fan, though. That's why we were chatting. So uh, that really? was good to. Nice guy. Nice guy. Um, hope everybody listening had a great Christmas and uh, a happy new year to you all again we've loads to talk about we're going to start 2020 as we mean to continue by lampooning Saracens uh, <laughs> the Times reported this morning I, I was not aware of this and maybe it's new information that they were very nearly handed a 70 point deduction as opposed to 35 that they got only to be saved by Premiership Rugby's regulations allowing for discretion in cases where such a harsh penalty may not be in the spirit of the competition I would suggest breaching the salary cap over the course of three years two of which in which uh, you won the premiership and using a, an illegally assembled squad to impact other club seasons is also not necessarily in the spirit of the competition but it turns out it could have been a lot worse for Saracens uh, than it is at the moment and to be honest it's still pretty bad Andy yeah they are you know I heard um, I don't know if it's confirmed talk of Liam Williams going back to Scarlet's early. Uh, they're trying to, um, I suppose they're trying to offload uh, older players and certainly players who are out of contract at the end of this season, which uh, 
you know, let's keep with lampooning them. You'd have to say they're trying to be pragmatic, at least at this stage. That's got to be a tough environment to be in as a player, sitting around in meetings, getting told one or two or three of you are clearly up next. You know, yeah, and each guy knows who's, you know, you know when your contract is up and you know how old you are. So there's 10 to 15 guys in the room looking around going right, uh, writing's on the wall here. So that's a tough thing for a professional individual to go through and it's not their choice that Saracens broke the salary cap. They got the benefits of it as individuals and a nice wage packet, but they've got to move on and uh, their their job is uh, very much in the danger zone at the moment. So I do, you feel a little bit for, for the individual players in that setting, but I don't feel for Saracens in any way. Um, I'm delighted that the 35, <clears throat> 35 point, was it 35 yet, yeah, that it stuck in the end. That was the thing. I was worried about the 35 point penalty was going to go on appeal and be seven points or something ridiculous. Mm. So at least they stuck with 35 and points and six million. And it's it gives, I think, a fair kick up the arse to them to say, right, you've, you've, you're touch and go, whether you can stay in the premiership, you've got to, you've got to disassemble your squad. I think that's a fitting enough um, punishment. Yeah, Williams was on his way back to Scarlet's anyway. There's talk that, as Andy says, he may leave early, which would free up, they reckon, 230 grand before the end of the season. And then there are other names as well that look to have at least one foot out the door, some of them kind of bigger names than other, but Callum Clark, Michael Rhodes, Alex Lewington, John, uh, Juan Vigalio, sorry, um, are sort of being linked with exits. And then a, a massive one in George Cruz, who's been linked with the move to Japan, which would have ramifications for England as well as Saracens, one of the best line-out operators in the world currently and uh, an incredibly intelligent player and probably I'd imagine a, a massive influence in that dressing room as well plus speaking of influences and he's not being discussed as much but Brad Barrett the captain is out of contract at the end of the season so there's an issue there as well potentially yeah. but just to, to touch upon Cruz to begin with it will be a huge loss he's a really key figure runs the line as you say and he's got a lot of nows a lot of experience again culturally he'd be a, a, a big figure in that change room Saris are getting their comeuppance now we're really seeing in the last week it's changed quite dramatically Nigel Ray the chairman stepped down. It had to happen. Um, and uh, Griffiths, the, it's Edward Griffiths, has come in as the CEO. He was formerly there, I think, 2006 to 2015. He knows the club. He's also got a background in the media. He, he was a journalist and editor. So I think he understands that they needed to change the picture forever on the outside, the perception. He's, he immediately started talking about getting rid of players. And now we're seeing this happen. And it is going to really disrupt them, both this season and next season as well it's going to greatly reduce the, the quality of their squad the depth of their squad and it also points to the fact that it was ludicrous for them to suggest in the first place that this was maybe an administrative error <laughs> kind of almost hinting that maybe an accountant had messed up a few figures and there was a there was an oversight of something it's quite clear that they're quite a large part over that 7 million 7 million sterling salary uh, cap so they're clearly scrambling to get within that this season at the moment you have to presume they're operating well over that if you take everything into account now if players don't actually play in the season then at the end of the season they're not counted towards that salary cap so someone like Williams if he goes early he hasn't played this season all those guys you mentioned are certainly Clark Rhodes and Figalo I don't think they've played it all this year so they can get them off and, and, and move them on but it's definitely going to cause disruption it's definitely going to even focus that priority towards the, the premiership even further you would imagine and, and probably weaken their European campaign there still are incredible quality of players there but I think it's I think it's really good for everyone to see the, the price you pay when you when you cheat when you break the rules they've paid that fine of nearly 6 million sterling and 
all the clubs got a share of that. You saw Exeter Chiefs immediately donating it to charity just to get another little... Uh, it almost felt like a dig. It's a really good thing to do, dig. obviously, but... In the statement, they were like, yeah. given where the money came from, we don't want to touch it, basically. Exactly. Paraphrasing and, and a brilliant there. gesture, and, and that's got to be applauded, and it's great to see it happening. But I think everyone's got a touch to that, isn't it? Schadenfreude, is that the word? Where you're just kind of taking a little bit of glee and seeing someone you probably didn't dislike just having their downfall. Now, they're still going to compete ferociously in Europe, I'd imagine, and I wouldn't be surprised, to be honest, if they keep clocking right up that premiership table because... The way they're playing is is really impressive, but yeah, it's it's good to see them paying the price for uh, uh, kind of going over that price of the salary. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting even looking at some of the reaction to it around the time. High profile journalists in the UK kind of defending Saracens even and suggesting that the whole thing had been overblown. I read a piece from like November in the Guardian. Couldn't tell you who wrote it, and, and kind of don't really care who wrote it. It was nonsense. But one of the points he made was that, um, or one of the questions he asked was like, "Did they really break the rules, or did they just bend them?" You know, it's like, no, no, they broke them. Like we've, <laughs> we're seeing that now, and it's remarkable as well, Andy, to see how they have gone from saying, "No, no, we didn't break any rules," to, "Well, like maybe we did bend them slightly." Uh, we we didn't do that much wrong uh, to saying like we did something wrong to saying we we're actually still doing it wrong as it turns out and uh, yeah. just bear with us a moment while we try and put it right yeah it's like one of these political scandals that unravels over time and um, I think it could have been dealt with better as Murray mentioned uh, I've forgotten that, sorry what's the name of the, the CEO who's there from 06 to 50 Edward Griffiths, the guy with the, the, the oh. I suppose the media experience oh, Griffiths yeah. coming back in that <clears throat> What he's talking about could have been done, I think, in the immediate aftermath. Um, you know, in I was over at the Saris Munster game. <clears throat> it's such a, it's such a strange uh, place, Allianz Park. Anyway, it's it's like a, you know, uh, an abandoned leisure centre that was. They put a stand on one side. There's an athletics track. All their fan base, and it's not a huge fan base, come from St Albans, which is about fifteen miles away. They're not in central London. They're kind of northern belt um, of, of uh, I think, the M1. But it's just, a, it's a bit of a, it is a bit of a soulless place. Like, it kind of landed, walked around, got a bus. Famous have walking up a kind of a dirt road into what looked like an, an abandoned uh, athletics track. And you come out the other side, there's a stand. But there were about 100 or so uh, locals dressed in blue jackets had were volunteers. They have some name for them, but they're they're they were very impressed with themselves that Saracens have have built up this initiative for volunteering and for helping out, and they're they're trying to get it across Premiership clubs. It's a nice initiative, but all of them who I was chatting to were saying, "Look, you know the salary cap. Most people I think are accepting now. We didn't do anything wrong, so that their own fans are in denial." And I didn't want to be rude, but I just said, "Okay, yeah, fair enough." Yeah. I had a coffee and went up to the the media gantry, but they seem to have their within their own micro cosm and their own support base they feel they've been wronged somehow and uh, that that's still actually a little bit dangerous because that if the team can galvanize themselves and feel like the victims and um, they've, they've still got a huge amount of quality and um, I'd love to see them um, not go and win Europe now or really struggle in the premiership just to, to take their medicine but there is a danger that they could still be quite successful still the one thing I would add is they do a very good pre-match pies over there Yes. Which is always a highlight of the trip to the UK. The yeah. pre-match pies is a big yeah. thing. But yeah. They're very good in Saris, to be fair to them. Yeah. More seriously, though, I would like to see us all be told exactly what they did. 
what they did wrong. We have we don't we've no clarity at mm. all. We don't know what happens. We don't know how much they exceeded mm. by. We don't know exactly how they managed to do it and and how they got away with it. I think it would be good for the whole game for supporters for everyone who's pissed off about it to get that clarity, and then it would be good that. The, the Premier Premiership rugby go and, and make sure all the other clubs are, are within those well see that's the thing and I think that's why a lot of Sarri's fans feel wronged is that in the past I'm sure other clubs would have been over the cap as well I mean Sarri's were one of what four or five clubs that were investigated four years ago for the same thing and nothing came of it because I think the consensus was that maybe there was more than Saracens doing it at the time like and I can also <laughs> understand when you're a fan of a club and you know, fans of every other club are piling in on top of you, how you would feel kind of not necessarily wronged in that instance, but defensive, you know, like, was it really that egregious? Was it really that bad? You know, it turns out it was, but, you know, I think their fans are just getting their backs up a little bit because they're being put through the ringer all of a sudden. And this came from the other clubs, like the the flags were raised by directors of rugby and other clubs who (laughs) had their strong suspicions, but there are certainly other clubs out there who have had lots of kind of marquee style players with big wages you would imagine so i'd say everyone's kind of looking to get their house <laughs> quickly in mm. order and make sure that anything that was uh suspiciously done in the past is is kind of covered over or whatever but look it's good that this one's out there and and hopefully this sets the precedent that this is what happens like if saracens go on and have success it is probably bad because you think oh they, they've kind of got away with it there they didn't get the 70 points they only got the 35 so like obviously you don't see Saracen fans too upset but you would hope that the punishment is fitting for I guess the, the crimes they committed just one last one before we move on from Saris and it's a bit of a, a left field question or maybe a more of a long longer term question even if they went on to achieve success this season which they very well might do they also have the best academy in England I think it was was it nine of the England World Cup squad were Saris products uh, they've had premiership games this season where 11 12 starters have all been academy products and one of the issues there is obviously that academy players in you know on an academy contract or at the very early stages of their career aren't paid a lot of money but when they go on to become an England international at 22 23 then suddenly their salary might be bumped up by 400 500 percent and one of Sari's contentions is that if you were contributing to the greater good of English rugby by providing these England internationals, then surely you shouldn't fall foul of a salary cap by, by way of producing so many great players that warrant big salaries. Now, I think it's the first 50 grand of uh, an academy product's salary doesn't come under the cap or there's some kind of an exemption there. But if you were to look at the longer term ramifications... For Saracens then, Andy, is there a risk from their perspective that Griffiths or whoever, um, the club as a whole, could look to start doing what a lot of other premiership clubs have done, which is just bringing in cheaper imports rather than building, you know, nine or ten academy players into international stars? Yeah, they. I mean, uh, the Eddie Jones... Uh, he actually was a head coach in Saris. He's probably familiar with how the club runs. Um, from an England point of view, the RFU are going to, I, I'd say, be very aware how many players, quality players, Saracens have produced and brought through the academy. So um, I don't know what the answer is for the RFU or Saris, but the they're definitely going to be very much likely to to bring in in the next two seasons slightly below par or below standard 
uh, a journeyman type players as opposed to marquee players in order to just try and uh, build strength and depth in their squad I don't think they're going to go the route the holistic route of keep pumping money into younger guys in the academy bring them through and a marquee guy at the other end they were kind of two ends of the spectrum two extremes top level established internationals and a lot of funding into youth that again that's going to challenge their whole salary uh, model so i think they're going to have to be pragmatic and bring in um your middle of the roaders and and just try and build survival instincts for a couple of seasons but i um i i suspect England rugby will be damaged, yeah, as well, you know. Yeah, particularly with the likes of Cruz potentially moving on. Yeah, and, and like, there is that side of the argument, and, and Saracens say we're actually helping these players be more financially well off when they finish their careers. They're actually, you know, setting up those companies with them. They'll argue that, they'll argue they're producing players for English rugby, but this is not just about Saracens. That rate of spending is not sustainable for the game of rugby. It's not bringing enough money for any other club, really, to, to support that kind of spending. So, they have to suck it up they've signed up to play in this league they've signed up to play in in these competitions so they've got to adhere to those rules and if that means potentially yeah you, you might lose a couple of players that you've produced yourself well that's the reality of it because everyone else can't spend that kind of money or get anywhere close to spending it so you've got to just uh, suck it up and get on with it yeah them's the rules uh, in Saracen's pool in the Champions Cup of course are Monster and I think speaking about the four provinces ahead of the weekend Munster is probably the place to start just given there was the most news from Munster over the course of this week and I think the challenge facing them in Paris this weekend looked quixotic on paper as it was and then the news breaks of Joey Carberry's injury Murray and first and foremost just for the player and for the man what an absolute dose this is like it's just unbearably bad luck in a year full of it really for him yeah, I couldn't actually believe it when I heard um, it was Keane Tracy in the Indo who broke the news first. I'd heard earlier in the day, but honestly, I couldn't believe it. So I was trying to back it up and back it up because literally he was back from the ankle that had ruined his World Cup. He was playing injured, that had delayed his start of a season and he just gets back and yeah, you, you got a feel for him. He said himself, I think he put it on his Instagram that he's devastated and um, you know, Van Graan was talking about when he came in that there was a sense of disbelief throughout the whole organisation really. He... he got a little tweak in the first half of the Ulster game and you actually saw he came out with a bandage on his right hand he he wasn't feeling pain there was a little bit of lack of grip in his hand and they said they'd scan it and again he wasn't feeling a great deal of pain but it, it comes back that he's requiring surgery and he's going to be out for up to four months it sounds like about three months I think is the is the feeling at the moment so it's just a, and it's another incredible blow for a player who last year in 2019 only completed 80 minutes of rugby twice in the whole year for club for province rather and country uh, only racked up about 500 minutes of game time. Essentially, didn't really play at all. We haven't really seen him get a run for Munster at the very start when he he first moved down from Leinster. He did he did get a couple of back to back games, but it's been incredibly frustrating, and it's been incredibly frustrating for Van Graan, I would imagine too, because he's the player that he wanted to build around. Naturally enough, he he sees him as the the key leader, the key. Uh, playmaker for them moving forward um, and it looks like another season kind of gone for him hopefully he gets back for the, the tail end of it but of course Munster could be out of the Champions Cup and um, fighting hard in the in the Pro 14 so it's just another little another big negative rather um, in, a, in a moment when it looks like Munster's season could just teeter over the edge you, you would hope obviously that they can go and produce something big in, in Paris but um, it's just it's just another blow for them yeah, it's certainly on Cliff's edge at the moment and probably was so even before 
that Carberry injury, to be honest. Um, just firstly, your own impressions of, of the Carberry situation, Andy, as a, an outspoken advocate for the player on this podcast over the last year or so. Um, I feel hugely sorry for him, yeah. I think um, his, his, um, his natural game is... It's probably the most enjoyable to watch of any of the out halves, including Sexton. Um, it's just his natural game, his is how he glides, how he runs, um, his ability to to line break. Um, and now there are loads of things Johnny Sexton does better than him. There are things um, Jack Carty, Jack Carty does better. Ross Byrne has done things better than him. You know. But I just find his all-round game, he, I, I think he's probably got the most innate talent. And when you've got someone with that innate talent, in reality, he just needs a good run, which he got with Munster last year. And it, uh, at one stage, he, you know, when he had a, a couple of missed kicks in a crucial European game against Castro, he actually showed then mentally what he's capable of as well. It wasn't just about, you know, I'm a talented guy. He he put a string of uh, successive uh, successful kicks together I think it was 26 27 all pre- a lot of pressure kicks he shows he's got a lot of metal and that'll serve him well with this injury um the the injury itself is a really shitty little injury because it's um it, without sounding too mean harder he'd probably have been better off just breaking his arm like you you know you break your arm the bone heals and you're back in 12 weeks if you you've an anatomy lesson from a physio he's two you have two bones in the arm and then you've the the radius and the ulna and you've the carpal bones and the wrist and there's about 10 bones there and there's there's ligaments joined bone to bone so there's loads of really little important ligaments they're small but they're crucial to your wrist stability and as a 10 as a rugby player but particularly as a 10 you need you actually really need your wrist to be strong catching you know bullets coming from 20 yards from Connor murray um to catch that is a difficult thing to do with a very unstable wrist it mightn't be painful but it's um it's unstable he, you know when he passes he's going to use it when he lands on the floor when he tries to tackle when he goes into contact when he tries to and he uses his hand off a lot um as more than a lot of out halves do it's quite central to his performance and to rehabilitate a a, a small ligament in the wrist that's been surgically reconstructed is really uh, bitty and complicated as opposed to just breaking your arm land the bone tail cast up do a bit of strength work back on the field so it's not even a straightforward recovery for him so that'll add a bit of uh, further turmoil to it but four months is probably a fair a fair uh, assessment of when he'll get back and we just hope then he gets a run of luck I think if I was to advise him personally, I'd say go off on a holiday or something because I know at my first three seasons as a professional, I had three operations and you just spend time, you just, you're losing your marbles and you're on the outside of everything and you're a train on your own half the time. And yeah, I think if Munster can just put an arm around him, send him off on a holiday or something, give him a few weeks to, to forget about things and then come back in and go at it. You know? Down to Ballady Hob for a couple of points of beam. Yeah, leave, leave us, get him down there for a couple of Guinness and a packet of crisps. In all seriousness, um, <coughs> like it's fascinating to hear about the start of your own career where it was blighted by uh, injuries. And I was going to ask you this actually without having knowledge of that, which is given your expertise and also given the fact that you were a professional rugby player, in the wider context of Carberry's career, is there a risk that you're sort of losing a crucial juncture or period of development? You know, he's 24. He's not. He's not 21. Like, 
he's loads of time at his side but he's also sort of approaching those years where you're going to start entering your prime and just isn't playing a lot of rugby like we've seen it with plenty of players over the years in all sorts of sports but even a monster like you could have said the same for Bill Johnson so much was expected of him just had such bad luck with injuries and never quite um, got enough consistent game time to, to fulfil that potential down there and he may still up north but just with Carby is there a risk that he, he's kind of losing you know an important part of his career really um, there's a, there is yeah I mean they could be they could be formative years from 23-24 if he got a run you I suppose <clears throat> it would accelerate his progress but I actually the nature of the injuries are not they're not going to cause a, a negative effect longer term. If you look at Dan Levy's injury, where his knee is literally fully reconstructed, that's going to have long term effects for Dan Levy in his late thirties, forties. You know, it's going to have effect on his his ability to to probably to perform to the level. That's that's probably in question with Dan Levy. Can he get back ever to the level he was at? That's not the case with Carberry because it's a wrist ligament. So the ankle stuff that he got, the injury around there, similarly, it's it's not something that's going to put great mileage on him physically. It's just the frustration and the time away from the game. So in one sense, can he physically get back to where um, he's been? Absolutely, and better. Um, he can't obviously replace the lost time, but... 24 if he's back you know at 24 and a half fully fit I would say who cares like I learned most of my the best things I learned as an out half were from about 27 28 29 I just men are not mature in general and <laughs> young rugby playing men are not mature I certainly wasn't I started to learn and have a bit of self-awareness about what the out half really needs to do for his team when I got a run of games, probably after the age of twenty-five. So I, you know, I don't, I don't think it's it's uh, it's it's a despondent type thing from to say, okay, I've lost out two seasons, therefore, that's two seasons out of my career gone. He can, I think, equally, given the nature of the injuries, he could elongate his career another two years at the other end quite as easily. So uh, something tells me Jay Johanran will be okay this weekend. He's fifty-fifty officially, um, so has a chance of playing. If he was out, or even if he was to start and come off, say, um, if he if he was to sort of suffer the same injury again, uh, it'll come down to either Ben Healy or Rory Scannell, which is kind of unbelievable, really. Um, ben Healy just sort of hasn't uh, played enough senior rugby to be in this position, maybe forced into it, and Rory Scannell is an inside centre and probably hasn't played out half consistently beyond training since he was 17, 18 quite the conundrum yeah it wouldn't be the ideal situation I would certainly have the sense that Hanron will feature now hopefully it's fully fit JJ Hanron he's had those hamstring issues seems to be slightly recurring and obviously Andy would know more about that but uh, he's going to have a fitness test Friday hopefully train and, and hopefully play that's what they're hoping and I think there is a sense that he's, he's going to come right for it if not it is it's a an even bigger ask to go to Paris and win because Ben Healy has played once at senior level for Munster. We all know he has great potential and Johan van keeps talking about it, but he hasn't given him the game time to, to kind of support that. He's been around the senior squad, I know, but they keep doing the 6-2 bench split, so you're even missing out on maybe 10 minutes here, 5 minutes there. Um, 
and he's of course it's a massive step up from he's a confident young guy and I think he'd probably love to have the chance and, and that's how, kind of how you can make your name but it would be a big ask for him to go and steer the ship I would probably think that Scanlon would be the more likely option um, he has played there obviously with, with Dolphin in the IL in the last couple of years but oh, not, yeah, not very recently yeah. his last start for Munster there was 2015 I think that was his only start and he's probably moved there in a couple of matches but not ideal again he's not He's not a 10 he's clearly a, an inside centre and, and that's where he's best so yeah you're left in that tricky conundrum but hopefully for them Hanrahan comes through and, and he's been playing his, probably some of his best rugby ever for Munster this season it's not ideal that he's had it kind of broken up by the hamstring issues but if he's there and if he's right it, it gives him a, a big boost for this game which is an incredibly difficult task I'm looking forward to seeing Racing play again on this pitch. Watching them live on this on the surface indoor in this uh, Paris La Défense arena is really breathtaking. They play at such a kind of turbocharged speed. Obviously, they're already the most lethal attack in the in the Champions Cup. I don't think anyone else has made more line breaks on them. I think they're around 16 on average per game. Thomas and and Juan Imov are the, are the two biggest line breakers in the comp. And I know Simon Zebo is going to be missing, but you've Brees Dulan to come in at 15 with the other array of stars like Vakatawa and, and everyone else in their in their team. So they've got a lot of firepower and it's tough to live with them on that surface. I think Munster will produce a, a big performance, but I don't even know if that's going to be enough. I think the damage has been done, that, that home draw, the way the bonus points went in the, in the two Saracens games. Um, and listen, yeah, Racing could beat Saracens away potentially in the final game and there may be a permutation there, but I fear that if, if they lose this weekend, it's over. And I just, I just see... Rassing edging it with with their ability to to break the game with those superb attacking players they have. Yeah, it's uh, that's depressed me hugely. I have to say, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but enjoy the game over in Paris. I'm sure it will be breathtaking to watch. And like watching Munster over the last couple of games, those second, sorry, the second and third interpros, and even over the course of their Champions Cup pool, to me, and it's a very naked eye. Uh, they seem to have regressed even from last season and I know it's early doors I know there's been a, a coaching overhaul or switch at least in two key positions but one of the areas in which they seem to have gone backwards is actually just the collision like they're losing collisions left right and centre and if you are losing those collisions it doesn't really matter a shite who your attack coach is or who your forwards coach is or, or what you're trying to do because you can't do much if you're going backwards yeah I I, they they do I I agree with you fully that they they look at a low ebb a, a, something that Munster you'd always hope for in, in, a, in a Christmas Interpro or in a bigger game is that they're at the right pitch in terms of their how they show up physically that's always been a baseline requirement um, I never actually beat a Munster team I had a 10 year or 11 year professional career and I never won a match against the Munster side um, now they were they were kind of peak level at that stage of maybe seven eight times maybe more beaten by them but the one thing you came up against was a kind of an unrelenting physicality throughout the game and it was constant so that seems to have gone uh, a little and certainly it's not a consistent thread they they're able to go to the well and drag it out every once in a while when they need to but that unrelenting physicality has, has, has gone that's worrying um, the mitigating factor potentially in that is with a Larkham and a Roundtree coaching combination come in they're focusing in training on trying to change things that how they play and they're falling between two stools in that players are trying to implement things that 
the coaches want players are learning what the coaches want coaches are learning about the players and in that process of change which is necessary their baseline you know stuff that they've turned up with for years has started you've taken a focus off it um <clears throat> i think that's acceptable as a reason why their physicality has dropped because I think they're trying to learn a couple of things. I think they probably all collectively, and I'm talking the Munster province, the support base, the loyal, most loyal of fans, their um, their management team, as in the rugby management and their bosses as well, <clears throat> probably need to take a deep, collectively take a deeper breath and say the team probably needs to develop a sense of identity now and be given a bit of time in the next year or two with two excellent world-class coaches um, in Roundtree and, and Larkham and allow, allow them to develop that and allow these we demand instantaneous uh, success all the time we've demanded that in Irish rugby for years and it's to our detriment because we don't turn up at World Cups because we're great to win an X Six Nations game, but where are we actually going over a longer period? If Munster take a deep breath for a year or two, I think they can come out of this in the next eighteen months. But I don't think they can come out of it in the next six weeks. And I think the coaches should be given a bit of time, and younger players will come through, and they might sign a few big names. Um, but I, I, I don't think it's as bad as everyone sees. They're currently presenting. I think they're just at a bit of a low ebb right now, but I think that'll come around. They didn't. It didn't happen with Rod Penny, who tried to change a lot, probably too much too soon. And yeah, they just that that collective sense of where sense of direction, sense of purpose in their game. You can see it in Leinster. It's very um, immediately recognisable how they play. You can see it in Ulster now, how they play, what they're trying to achieve. You can't quite see it with Munster, but that will come. I think. Yeah. The, I suppose the mitigating factors here really, really tough pool. Let, yeah, like, yeah. Let's be honest with that. It was Rasky and Saracen two of the best teams in Europe, um, and they have obviously had real issues with the continuity. That he's had his Ireland internationals away, twelve players. It's been really bitty that way. The one player, person he did mention there is Johan van Graan, mm. and it's really interesting to see what happens with him. I do sense that he's going to be under pressure if they lose this game, if they're knocked out of Europe. For Munster fans, that's not really acceptable, and, and definitely certain people in the media will be piling some pressure onto him maybe the relationship with some of the players isn't quite fully there yet between Van Gran and, and some of the key guys but that works both ways I think he probably is frustrated with some of the senior players mm. Conor Murray's not been his best form Peter Romani hasn't been his best form these are guys who've never won a trophy at Munster who've spoken about that being the ultimate goal they're true Munster men and he probably wants to see a little bit more from those guys um, and equally I think some of them are, are still not sure quite what he's maybe adding to the picture or how he's kind of steering the ship so there's that uneasiness there and, and I'm not saying there's any great discontent or anything or the, the camp is divided but just if things don't go well this weekend they're out of Europe people are getting on their back it can slide quite quickly yeah. and that pressure can really quickly build up and, and fans can turn against it so it's just a tricky situation for them to be in I know I totally agree with what you're saying we're, we're such a short term I suppose sport is such a short term thing yeah. you're, you're demanding success instantly it doesn't work like that and it takes time and I think Munster and RFU recognise that by giving Van Gran the contract extension he's, he's 2022 so it will be good if there's a bit of patience there but I can I can understand the frustrations really from, from both angles as well I watched um, <clears throat> when I was down in West Cork lots of sport like we all did over Christmas but um, the recent Liverpool-Sheffield United game was interesting because Klopp has been given 
time. Klopp didn't win for the first four years and people were questioning him in a lot of ways. Um, he obviously got time, he brought in, he had a lot of money and he brought in players. But when they played against Sheffield United, Chris Wilder uh, was interviewed afterwards and he said, you can talk about money and you can talk about rubbish about coaching structures and systems he said Liverpool won every first ball every loose ball every second ball they ran more than the Sheffield United players forwards and backwards he was very simple he just said they wanted it more and this is the best team in Europe and the best you know they've just won the World Club Cup their baseline now as a team that's been given a chance to develop over four seasons is really aggressive physical stuff that you you expect from a team who has no money and no resources and you, know, you got to turn up and at least do that it's very hard to do that all the time when you're not winning you know so when you win it's easier to sometimes to uh, to up the physical stakes and be really you know aggressive i think this <clears throat> expectation that munster should always be um at a higher pitch than everyone else physically and more aggressive is it's a bit difficult to expect them to do that all the time when they haven't had the results as well you know so there's a my point being they need a little bit of time to develop and the physicality and the tradition of their game will probably come back with a run of success. For sure. And there are similarities between Liverpool and Munster in this sort of fervent nature of the support. Like yeah. it's quite an emotional, uh, an emotive support base. But at the same time, the one thing with Klopp was that never would it have been questioned whether or not the players bought into what he was doing or what he was trying to do. Like it was yeah, clear true. always that the buy-in was there. <clears throat> and I wonder is... One of the mitigating factors in Munster being slightly off the pace at the moment is that that the buy-in isn't quite there among some well, of those senior players based with, on. Yeah, I mean, and and a, probably a fair question. You'd wonder. Um, I can't. I cannot see Rowntree and Larkin being under significant pressure because they're not the head coaches. No, and they it, won't be. It's and, but it's, yeah, it's the head think, coach will be under pressure. Head, and I, I wonder if you've got the caliber of coach and the international experience of Rowntree and Larkham, is there an argument to bring in some kind of uh, cavalier guy who's a monster legend or you know who who basically galvanizes the group and doesn't do a whole lot of coaching and there's there's often a case for the director of rugby or the head guy not doing a whole lot of specific rugby stuff and he's certainly got two guys there in Munster who can who can run that uh, the practice sessions on their own, the technical stuff, the tactical stuff, but do they need someone to connect them with their sense of identity and their culture and heritage and history and galvanise the place and galvanise the troops and galvanise the senior players and the fans and get a feel-good factor around it? It might be something that is an an easy fix come the end of the season going into next year. Paul O'Connell's available, isn't he? Yeah. Is, well, is, we're talking about this as, as the, the edge, but it can also be the making. It's like make or break is a cliche, but it's kind of fair in this instance. They go to Racing and they win. It's an unbelievably big European win. Regenerates everything, puts them back into contention, and everything lifts. And any doubts you have are, are kind of are gone. Oh, it's it going to sound like we were talking quick. absolute bollocks if they go to Racing and win, which is, which would be great. Uh, you know, I I think those things are there, but I think they can change quite quickly. We're all human beings, and any doubts you have can quickly be evaporated by a bit of success. Same with a fan. Same with someone who might question Van Gran or or how they're going about or the players not having won anything it can change quickly and this feels like a, a weekend to, to do it to go to Racing no one's really expecting them to win but it'll be some statement certainly would uh, Ulster turned them over last day out and I suppose if there is a little bit of doom and gloom around Munster just over the last couple of weeks the opposite of, is true of Ulster's season so far you had a piece during the week Murray about how it's not only John Cooney who's kind of putting his hand up for Ireland selection in the spring like there are a couple of 
actually a couple of like older names if you know what I mean like names that have been in that Ireland setup um, and in squads in the past who are putting their hands up once again and, and sort of seem really reinvigorated in what Ulster are trying to do and what they're successfully doing at the moment yeah they've got really nice momentum about them it is a tricky task Claremont's record in the Champions Cup at home is incredible I think they've won 30 out of 31 so it is going to be a, a big ask but that's the place to prove yourself if Andy Farrell is thinking about okay this guy could be ready is John Cooney quite ready to start and he goes and, and dominates in Claremont away I know they haven't been brilliant in the top 14 but they love this competition and it's an incredibly intimidating place to play they have an unbelievably good support base really enjoyable place again to watch a match so if he can go and impress if Will Addison can go and impress at fullback keep some pressure on Jordan Larmer Rob Herring who I think has been the outstanding hooker really in my, in my eyes I know some of his throwing is raised question marks but I think some of that's been down to calling and other issues as well as his own his own fault at times but I think he's been really good around the pitch Stuart McCluskey continues to grow as a player and yeah he seems to have been around for quite a while but he's really rounded out his skill set he can pass he can offload he can jackal as well as use his his physical power as well and and make some really good decisions he seems to have really matured and it's just fascinating to see how Andy Farrell views a lot of these players guys who maybe McCluskey in particular and, and Cooney obviously who weren't quite in favour with Joe Schmidt whether Andy Farrell sees there maybe that X factor as, as more important than some of the other things that, that Schmidt rated so it is a, a big game for Ulster just to keep that momentum going obviously the winner of this essentially wraps up the pool and um, there's, a, there's a whole lot on the on the line there but also for players individually and, and I thought it was really refreshing to see Dan McFarland say of course my players are thinking about that before, before or after the Munster game he said of course they're thinking about Cooney versus Murray that's that's got to be part of it and that's got to be a motivation I think he steered that ship really well we had a piece with him actually over Christmas about his kind of background in psychology a real student of it he started actually like formally studying it when he was in Connacht as an assistant coach and you can kind of see it rubbing off he has all his catchphrases the one that stands out to me is kind of squeezing every drop so maximizing your potential as much as you can and someone like Cooney really I feel is doing that he's he's 29 he's not a young player and he's not this inexperienced guy who's emerged from nowhere but he's added real new elements to his game we've talked about his sniping before he's his box kicking has improved immeasurably like no one has won back or no one has kicked more for retrieval kicks than John Cooney in, in the Champions Cup I think 10 of his kicks have been won back by his own player and 5 of them have forced opposition errors so a really high rate something you would have associated with Conor Murray probably more so but he's added that to his game and, and really imp- improved that side of it so yeah I've been really impressed with, with a lot of guys just others we're not even mentioning and, and guys who won't even feature in the Ireland squad but are, are putting their hand up and yeah I'm excited to see how Ulster use that momentum now to, to go and, and have a big challenge in France yeah they're probably proof Andy as well of how quickly things can change like they may not be quite European contenders yet they may prove to be later in the season but when you consider the ebb that they were coming from only a couple of years ago um, it's it's quite the turnaround under Dan McFarland. speaking of that game in France it seems like an impossible job really to go down to Claremont and win and that's not just for Ulster but actually for any team in, in Europe Um what would you be looking for them to do down there? Like, what's a... It's kind of a stupid question. What's a good result? But what can they do to impress, I suppose? So I would say, just, to me, stick to their form in the sense, true to form and how the same... Play in the same style they've played. Don't try and change the style going into Claremont. I don't think they will. That'll be an indication to me of how far they've come, that they don't go there and try and batten down the hatches that they, they play flash rugby 
and um, the danger going to Claremont is you open up the game and they rip you to shreds so teams go there and try and clam up a bit um, and I just don't think it's in Dan McFarland's nature with that group because he came in when they he if you're going to take over a team he took over at an opportune time Ulster rugby was probably at its lowest ebb in the last 30 years because of the various scandals that had happened the results um the general feel around the place up there was pretty despondent and it's a good time to take over as a head coach because you're you're at rock bottom but he has grabbed it by the scruff of the neck so so firmly and dragged it from the depths by i think in, in a number of really clever ways he's he's established in the same way Munster are struggling to find an identity and a style of how they play it was like Ulster almost had one immediately with him he he um you look at the likes of McCluskey, he gave him license to try and offload all the time. And that looks ridiculous for when McCluskey's making mistakes a lot at the start. But the frequency of those mistakes has gone away. And now McCluskey is a fulcrum of attack because players are they're on high alert around him because they know they've got a great chance to have a line break. Um <clears throat> that kind of stuff requires bravery that and good timing as well for Dan because they were allowed to be brave because no one expected them to win but that's smart that's pragmatic and their whole game has been built around kind of what you might look like as flash offloading fast electric rugby but he's brought in guys like Marty Moore you know Jack McGrath they're brilliant props and they're, they're, they have a really stable platform they've unsung heroes like Treadwell you know, turning up and being physical most weeks. So Dan's mix of being an ex-front rower and a good scrum coach um, alongside possibly his experiences over in Scotland with Townsend and that that mix makes them as formidable as they've become and it's not by accident. So I think he deserves huge credit. Um, and then obviously Cooney, who's who's been a real talisman for them, I, I think personally just needs to be selected for Ireland in in the first Six Nations game because if we don't start to reward people for form we're falling in straight away I think it's a great chance for Andy Farrell just to make a statement he doesn't have to pick Cooney for every match he could pick him for two he could pick Murray for two like why do you have to just make this decision that there doesn't have to be a have franchise to guy yeah, yeah there doesn't have, exactly um, why not pick him and reward him on form and gives Murray you know a kick up the arse Murray's not playing particularly badly at the moment, but Cooney's playing really well, so pick him, you know? Yeah, there's no debate, really. Um, there's no debate either as to how impressive Leinster have been all season, and it's one of the more difficult things to talk about on a podcast because you just have to really wax lyrical about them every week until they sort of <laughs> slip up somewhere and you can be like, well, what went wrong, Murray? But um, we were chatting earlier, and it's it's interesting. Like This time last year, we would have been talking about Leinster impressing again, but maybe not quite living up to the standards they had set a season prior and this season it seems as though they are exceeding the standards of two seasons ago uh, and that marvellous team from 2017-18 albeit it's it's early doors but it's just like it's a blue wave really isn't it and it, they seem inconquerable at the moment and, and I don't know who is going to change that actually over the next couple of months it's going to be a, a European semi-final or Pro 14 semi-final I think before they're put to the pin of their collar. Yeah, I, I think they're odds on for a double this stage. They've uh, 
they've very legitimately got three players in every position easy like across the board so uh, I don't know how you stop that and then the the intensity with which they train I bumped into Keane Healy about his the week after he commenced training with Leinster having come back from the World Cup so it was probably three to four weeks post World Cup and he said Lancaster ran him and the Irish players into the ground he said their legs were like jelly now they're they're meant to be they're, they're going to be you were hoping they're close to peak level fitness at a World Cup and they can't have dropped off that much in two weeks but what he what Lancaster whether he was doing it on purpose or trying to make a point he ran them so physically and it wasn't physical impact it was like getting meters in the legs he's uh, Kane said his legs were like jelly at the end of that week worse than they'd been all summer worse than in the worst of Irish uh, pre-season training sessions that was an in-season training session with Lancaster and he was like you got to get the legs up you got to get the meters up so they're in that old Brian Cody um, mould you know intense levels train Sean Boylan with the great meat sides training's more intense than the match day and uh, and I think they are true to their word on that I, I believe their training sessions are, are pretty full on intense and they are as a result making match day look very easy and that's the most impressive thing for me the skill level is incredible the power in contact is incredible but it's the work rate off the ball that stands out more than anything obviously you want players to be s- smart about how they use their energy but players like Keane Healy off the ball are making incredible runs where they often don't even get the pass but they're there in support they're there to hit the rock tracking back when they get line line breaks against they're so good at scrambling because everyone's working so hard even if it's not for the initial tackle they're in position on the next phase to to stop what might have been a try and that also comes from the, the competition you alluded to everyone's so desperate you talk about a kick up the hole for Conor Murray these players are getting one constantly in training because they realise the guy is breathing so closely down their neck. Mm. I don't think there's competition like it anywhere else. The depth chart is is really enviable. And it, it's just it's, it's just a, something that fulfils itself over and over again in the match day, in the training session. You're constantly on edge in a good way because someone's challenging you. There's a good environment around it as well. Like Lancaster's an expert in culture. So he, he gets the right edge on it. Guys obviously quite aggressively pushing each other but also kind of working with each other encouraging young players to 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 believe that they can push past a guy who may have been more established I, and, and challenging in, in the way you're talking about when we when i was in leinster uh there was the lads and now this is going to sound bad on the likes of brian and shane horgan they were good guys too but they were called the golden triangle at one stage it was brian dennis hickey and shane because really you didn't question anything that they did or said and they were they were treated differently but both by players and staff and then there was the wooden triangle which was like the lads uh, Bernard Jackman uh, Brian Blaney and Ronnie McCormack they called themselves the wooden triangle like you'd see hanging off a snooker table because they, they were the opposite end of the spectrum they, they, they came up with that name themselves so there was a golden triangle and a wooden triangle and everyone you were either in the middle somewhere this current Leinster group in terms of personnel I think Leo brought this when he came back and Shane Jennings brought it when they moved back from Leicester back in the great days of Leicester winning premierships and Heineken Cups they they came back from England they went this culture is wrong like there is no you know golden boys there are no you know badasses away down the fire end we're either in it together and you question everyone and you allow yourself to be questioned and get on with it and it kind of it just leveled out how people 
viewed uh, being a part of a Leinster squad. It used to be a Dublin 4 thing, then it was private school thing, then all the youth system guys started coming in and suddenly it's more of a GAA club culture than Leinster's ever had before and everyone's on a level playing field and Lancaster and Cullen are going to completely row in behind that and cultivate that as much as they can. So that makes them even more scary because, you know, can you imagine... Sexton going into training and being questioned by a young guy, you know, it, it can Harry happen. Harry Byrne. It can happen. And, and, I, and I think he's probably he is being encouraged to do it. And and Sexton will probably, you know, maybe give him a puck around the head, but he'll take it he'll take it as well. And yeah. that you know, they've they've a really strong cultural thing going on in terms of what's expected of the youngest guy versus the oldest guy and and i don't think there's any real split anymore you yeah know? and that's led by the coaches like by all accounts after the <coughs> champions cup final last year lancaster had a fair cut off sexton because he felt that he hadn't actually quite implemented the game plan that they discussed for that that fixture they they had intended to go beyond the 15 meter chance and they, they just didn't do it in the end it almost looked more like a game, an Irish game plan for, that Sexton implemented. Mm. So, by all accounts, he had a go off him, and, and I think that's good. Obviously, you don't want to be cutting players down all the time, and we know that a, a culture of fear is not a good thing. But it's an illustration that everyone is treated the same, and, and I think that's a really positive aspect. Yeah. Well, I don't think they have any kind of sense of a culture of fear. I think they're very much empowered all of them so I think it's quite the opposite but it's also similarly if Lancaster's prepared to go after Johnny mm. um, I remember there was, it was it was so well documented how Schmidt when he came into Leinster had a go at O'Driscoll for dropping a ball yeah. in training from a you know Darcy apologised for a bad pass he'd given and Schmidt turned around and said to O'Driscoll I thought you know good players catch those passes and everyone collectively took a, a deep breath because they'd never heard a criticism so I think Lancaster is, is well able for, for any of the top names and the top names respect that and sim- you know the, the group is, is just purring along nicely yeah, I'm surprised if they don't keep it ticking along nicely this weekend as well. Leon are obviously out of the mix yeah. away in the RDS on a Sunday. I don't know how high their interest levels are going to be. And it's a chance again, if you're looking at Ireland picture, it's a chance again for a host of guys who maybe aren't the star names, the Ross Byrne to, to kind of copper fasten his place as the second in the pecking order. Caelan Doris, I think, has been exceptional. I know Deegan was brilliant last weekend, but Doris looks like, to me, the next Ireland number eight. He's a really complete player. Even someone like Dave Carney, who's slipped off the radar probably in the last couple of years with injuries but he's been superb looks really uh, renewed physically and, and really positive and happy in, in how he's playing so loads to loads to follow and they're great to watch at the moment mm, that's the hilarity of it isn't it like that Max Deegan can score two tries and yeah. tee up three more and he's still behind Doris in the pecking order and a, another young lad like with and a massive Jack Conan out injured a Conan out injured yeah yeah oh uh, we'll finish with Connacht um it's it was a sort of mixed week for them um, in the sense that they have nine players back for Toulouse so you'd hope that they can rediscover some sort of semblance of structure and put together some sort of a performance in response to what was an embarrassing defeat to Leinster last time out and keep uh, their incredibly slim European hopes alive I think it's more really about just putting on a performance and getting back on track and then uh, on the flip side of that you know they're losing a massive player like and if he had been around for longer, uh, Colby Fuinga, he probably would have gone on to become one of the great imports in Irish rugby. But just the fact that he only arrived in 2018 it still made a significant impact. It's just a shame to lose him, really. Uh, and he's off to, to Leon as well, who we just mentioned. Yeah, it looks like that's pretty much going to get over the line. And I don't know when they'll announce it, but it, it's, if confirmed officially, it's a, it's a massive blow for, for Connacht. He's 
their players player of the year last year he was in the Pro 14 dream team for me one of the best signings in Irish rugby in, in recent years really he's a very complete player you could imagine almost lining out in the, in the centre he's got such a skill set really physical presence they've missed him hugely in the last few weeks I think he's a bit of a standard setter even just quietly off the pitch as well uh, in terms of his leadership it sounds like they were obviously very very keen to, to keep him there was some sort of delay I'm not sure exactly how it happened with the, the contract they offered him a contract there was some sort of delay and, and Leon swooped in and, and gave him an incredible offer I think it's around 300k so it's hard to compete with that of course but they'll be frustrated that they hadn't tied him down earlier maybe I think and he is a he's a big loss I think it'll be frustrating for other senior players probably in the group as well to lose a player like that so it is a setback but totally agree with you about this weekend those nine players back gives them a, a real boost and even if it's not going to be about continuing the European adventure a big game at, at home against Toulouse who are super power really in European terms you get a good result, result or even a really excellent performance and it gives a bit of momentum back which has completely seeped out in the last few weeks obviously the the Leinster game was really embarrassing for them I know they were missing a lot of players but I think both in the players in terms of what they delivered in, in defence and also in the terms of the coaching I, I didn't understand their strategy of sitting off the breakdown and letting Leinster have a, a free flow of attacking ball it wasn't until they actually went and competed at the breakdown I think around 38 minutes they get a turnover two minutes into the second half they go for it again they get another turnover and suddenly the the, st- the tide is kind of stemmed a little bit so I think there were probably errors on, on both parts of it also taking into account a quite incredible injury list it was always going to be a daunting task but to lose at that scale like the first half was extremely difficult to watch I thought was was really denting to, to any sort of belief that was in the group so it's about really lifting that up again and, and hoping to get back on a good run in the, in the Pro 14 Yeah understandable to some extent how rudderless they seemed last weekend Andy but when you get the likes of Jared Butler back Jack Carty who's going to steer the ship uh, Bundy Aki Alton Deland just senior figures guys that uh, will be extremely vocal just have that sort of experience and now that to be honest, in in a game against Toulouse, I, that I don't remotely seeing see as being unwinnable for them. Uh, like they did a good job down there in Galway, anything is possible. Yeah, timing is is everything. You know, the players coming back, they shipped eighty nine points in two games over Christmas. So they're, I would imagine, their entire focus this week is about their defence as the just the the first and foremost the way to establish themselves back you know we're back we've shook off Christmas the first thing they'll be looking at is being aggressive defensively line speed they'll be looking to reduce any to lose offloads and line breaks um, and you know if they can if they can simply do that that's probably enough as a response um, to the, the Christmas fair that they put on um, and you never know once a team is at the right pitch when you get 45 50 minutes into a game and you you know the defense is on top it can galvanize a group and the defense becomes unbreakable and the hits get bigger and stronger and the crowd get to fever pitch and so on and to lose lose interest it's, <laughs> you can see those that story it's been told before on multiple occasions down in Galway on games to nothing and suddenly you know there we are with a result that apparently came from nowhere but did it yeah, yeah. there have been plenty of teams who've lost interest in Galway to the point yeah. that it, it's not a coincidence you know no, and no. Uh, it is it's about having all of those factors in place to be fair and one follows the other but it's uh, certainly not impossible that it comes to fruition this weekend yeah and it is massive for Jack Hardy he's back from his break and I think Andy Friend was talking about him texting him going I didn't realise I was tired after the World Cup I feel really refreshed by that break 
Conor Fitzgerald's obviously going to be sidelined now for a while and Carty's essentially fighting for his place he, he missed out yeah. on that stock take and he'll certainly feel he has a lot to prove with Ireland after the World <coughs> Cup it didn't I think, it's, go I think well it's been him. a little unfair the the fallout from the World Cup on Jack um, I thought you know he did create two tries in the Japan game yeah. and there were senior players on the field a lot more experienced than Jack who didn't grab the game away yeah. from Japan in any way either but as a 10 sometimes you get undue praise uh, similarly you can get unduly criticised Ross Byrne was very heavily criticised for his performance in Twickenham when the eight guys in front of him got absolutely mangled you know so it's hard as, as a 10 I think it's it's nice that Jack is able to come back into this game feeling refreshed and I think we'll start seeing second half of the season the Jack Harty we saw last season it's possible as well as the World Cup went on if he felt himself afterwards that he you know he just wasn't quite feeling himself and was feeling a little bit tired that just even in training and within that uh, group environment that he kind of trailed off a little bit you know uh, that it wasn't necessarily down to his performances on the pitch that he maybe just wasn't quite producing it um, to hit the full yeah. extent of his ability yeah, in the I training ground it's, it's an experience he's never had he's never been in, in the international camp for that, such an extended period obviously the conditioning element and travel and being away for that long it was a new experience for him and I guess it was always going to be some sort of I guess fallout from that but yeah he's got so much ability last season he was absolutely superb and as you say those two assists showed what he can do so fingers crossed that break did him well and now he can get back in and, and really kind of lead that conic revival Prediction so boys before we wrap um, you've kind of half given them to a couple of games but just to get them on the record fully uh, Claremont and Ulster that's one o'clock on Saturday Claremont win for both of you just about and do you think Ulster can get a losing bonus point do you think they can win they can win I, I'm going to predict for all, th- all four games now I think Leinster are going to be the only Irish win okay I think Ulster I think Ulster and Munster are both competitive I think Connacht will too but think Leinster for, for a win that's a pretty pessimistic prediction sorry yeah that's the second time now today you've uh, gotten me right down uh, Andy I think I think Leinster to win I I have a question I, what's this have Toulouse qualified I'm not sure what's this not yet okay I know. if Toulouse had qualified I would maybe say a Connacht win yeah so they can, quali- they can still qualify yeah. next week so like I still think that you know with okay, the mindset well, of throw, having the spare I'm week th- I'm going to throw a Connacht win in there cat amongst the pigeons just to lose getting not arsed after 55 minutes because they're facing a physical onslaught and they know they can yeah. go home next week and get a win and Connacht's just I've been a part of that a few times then in Connacht myself and we beat uh, we beat Johnny Wilkinson's Newcastle side who were far better than us we beat Stephen Jones's Clenetley side and we were just we just got caught them ripe and uh, we'd, we'd been on the back of a few big defeats and we just Form goes out the window down in Galway. So I'm going to go with uh, that. Munster Munster to to win, Munster to lose um, maybe by 7 to 10, Ulster by 7 to 10, and Connacht to win by 1 or 2. Nice one. That's tolerable, I suppose, is the only (laughs) way I could describe that. Gentlemen, thanks a million for your time. Thanks. We will chat to you on Rugby Weekly Extra on Monday. And then we'll be back for the regular pod as well next Thursday. But enjoy the rugby over the weekend in the meantime. And until we catch you next time, take it easy. I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> it is Tommy Rugby, rugby, weekly. Then the first pass.
you start kicking when the room is spinning on the words I'm sticking. 